0: Welcome back to the second season of Sax Reel. This season is brought to you in part by Key Leaves. Are you suffering from sticky sax keys or striving to keep your instrument healthy? Check out Key Leaves and use the code SaxReal for a special discount at keyleaves.com. That's key like a saxophone key and leaves like leaves keys open to dry. Key Leaves this week, I am very excited for this guest. She's the professor of saxophone and the Woodwind Area Head at the Herb Alpert School of Music in UCLA. She's a founding member of the Status of Women in the North American Saxophone Alliance, and she's the co-artist director of the Bent Frequency Duo. I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Jan Baker.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So I'd love to start off with just a brief introduction, uh, a little bit about you, how you got into saxophone and things that brought you along to where you are in your career?
1: Sure. I think like many, I began playing the saxophone in middle school band. And I grew up in a pretty remote part of Alberta, very small um, town on the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan, actually. And we had a small band program, um, but a very strong one. We had a great band teacher um, who was very encouraging. And I think there were maybe four of us who played saxophone in the band. So it was, like I said, a really small program, but he was very encouraging of me to take private lessons. But given that we were in a really small area, um, there weren't very many options. And so my dad actually found someone who he had heard about who was, lived on a farm about an hour and a half away. Um, And she had a bachelor degree in music, specializing in saxophone from... A university in South Dakota, and was married a farmer and was now busy farming, um, but she apparently was willing to take on a student. So my dad drove me like three hours round trip for private lessons every Saturday, and I just really got interested in doing competitions and performing, and just you kind of naturally you know end up doing what you're going to do and by the time I got to high school I couldn't fathom actually doing anything else for my life when people said what are you going to do in college I said well of course I'm I'm going to go into music and yeah I don't know it was just kind of an organic um, unfolding of events really but I, I uh, upon you know reflection I, I don't didn't really realize how lucky I was to have um, this incredible female role model uh, in my life at such an early age and I didn't realize how unusual it was actually until long after the fact. So that's how I got started.
0: That's fantastic. you have very generous parents to drive you so far. <laughs>
1: Yeah, my dad, well, both my parents drove me, of course, but my dad was the one who uh, initiated you know, this kind of venture. And he actually um, agreed to babysit her young son, who was only a year old at the time, while I had my lesson. So not only <laughs> did he drive me, but he babysat oh, wow. uh, so that I could have my lesson. Yeah, because she was all by herself out there uh, on the farm. So. Yeah, And eventually she moved to town and took on a bunch of a bunch of students and actually taught a number of um, students who you actually might know. Aaron Rogers, who mm. um, is in New York City, grew up in the same area and actually studied with my same teacher. We had the same teacher and um, Kimberly Allen, who mm. did a master's degree with Fred Hemke many years later um, and now has moved back to Lloydminster, the town I grew up in, also studied with Barb Lorenz. Yeah. So there's many, many of us uh, who study with her.
0: That's awesome. I love that this woman who've moved out to a farm ended up having such a legacy. That's awesome. Cool story. Yeah. So, of course, you went through your many degrees and you studied with Hemke, and I'm sure you had an amazing experience with him. Was there any that stuck out during any of your degrees?
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I had a really great time studying with Fred Hemke. And there are so many memories and so many teaching lessons and life lessons that one learns and keeps along the way. And I, you know, things sort of bleed together as you get <laughs> older, you don't remember where you learn certain things. But um, yeah, you know, there are just so many life lessons, I think that I took from studying with him that um, are so important. And that is, you know, the importance of, of being a great person as well as being a great musician and and striving to be the, the best or to you know, be great at your craft, but also how much the other arts and other things enrich your life in so many ways, including your music mm. um, and how it was always so important to him what you did beyond playing the saxophone. And I remember him asking me that um, when I auditioned there as a master student, you know, what else are you interested in? What other things interest you besides playing the saxophone? And it was really an important question. It wasn't just a question he asked to incite conversation in sort of an interview process, but actually what he was interested in, because being interested in other things, um, in other arts and cooking, in hiking and reading, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter, just allows you to, you know, live a fuller life and bring more richness to your music. And so that is definitely one of the most important things that I learned as a student of his.
0: I love that point. That's, uh, I think, so important for everyone to kind of experience that type of education, because there's so many points in my life where I was like, okay, you need to take a step back from this for a second, just to, you know, not just be a saxophonist, you know, because if you pigeon yourself into that tiny little niche In the end, you're not actually going to be a very good saxophonist because you haven't experienced very much. So I love the idea of really making sure that you broaden that horizon and make sure that you experience a lot more than just playing music.
1: Yeah. And oftentimes you think about like, is sitting in this room for an hour more, you know, drilling this really going to make things a million times. Sometimes it does, you know, sometimes it really does. Sometimes slowing it down to less than half speed and and drilling something through really does make make an improvement. But when you do that always to the sacrifice of everything else in Mm -hmm. your life, Um, It really doesn't make things better. And oftentimes, when I've taken a step back from something and say, okay, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to cook something really great, or I'm going to go read something that I've wanted to read for a long time, or go listen to something else, not saxophone music, I find that I return to what I was doing, refreshed, and with a different perspective sometimes, and Mm -hmm. that sometimes is what I needed to make what it was I was doing better, not an hour more of shedding. Um, And so, you know, there's a time and place for that, of course. Um, But learning how to balance that in your life um, is a forever uh, task that we set our (laughs) minds to. Of course, you know, we always have trouble balancing these things. But I I really do think it's important for people to um, live a well-rounded life as best one can.
0: Mm -hmm. So, of course, after your education, uh, you did start applying for jobs. And I know that first job application can be really intimidating for a lot of people. (laughs) Just because it's unknown, you don't really feel fully experienced yet or qualified for these jobs. And right now, there are almost no jobs available anyway. So I'm just wondering what your experience was getting into the job market.
1: You know, I always thought to myself, okay, when my real life begins you know, I'll do this. When my real life begins, I'll, and I, it took me a long time to realize that wherever you're at is your real life Mm -hmm. and you are living your real life. Um, And it's not like getting some piece of paper magically makes you all of a sudden somebody different. Yes. Of course you get a qualification behind your name, but I feel like we need to act as professionals and do things as if we are always living our real life not you know waiting for something magical to happen after getting that master's degree or that doctoral degree or that whatever it is um and so yeah i you know was actively applying for jobs like many graduate students do probably before i was quote unquote qualified but i think it's important experience to practice writing those cover letters and to practice putting together professional CV and recording materials and all those types of things that they're looking for in an application so that you really are ready when the right opportunity comes along. And I don't feel like, again, it's, you know, getting that degree all of a sudden changes you. I mean, you were the same person yesterday. You just now have a piece of paper that says (laughs) that you have this degree, right? It's not like overnight you become somebody different. So looking for that first job, yeah, I, you know, I tried to make myself well-rounded, meaning I could do more things than just teach saxophone. And, you know, most of the places that I was working prior to teaching full-time wanted me to do other things, whether it was, you know, teaching a jazz band or whether it was teaching music theory or whether it was teaching intro to music and, you know, making sure that I was able to do and, and show that i could do those things was really important. Being willing to hold a couple of jobs was also really important. You know, to to um, maybe adjunct at a couple of different places. While not always, you know, a 100% ideal situation long term, it can be. I mean, i had i had a situation in Chicago that was actually really great, aside from not having health benefits at the time. <laughs> there were those were different times there wasn't um You know, the Affordable Care Act hadn't yet passed, and I was also not an American citizen, so I had some issues um, that other people may not have. But I actually quite enjoyed the diversity that holding multiple positions offered me in Chicago. I was working part time at Northwestern, I was working part time at Roosevelt, and I actually loved the diversity of doing all those things. And I had a huge studio of private students. Mm -hmm. I loved it, and I would have done it forever. But life took me in other directions, and you know, ended up providing other opportunities. Yeah. When I first applied for positions, I had a lot of disappointments and I had a lot of surprises that when I would apply for something, I would ask for reference letters from, from people. And sometimes they would say yes. And sometimes they would say no. And I'd actually never had that happen before. Um, And the reason they said no was because they were also applying for that job. Uh, You know, and so that happens, right? The saxophone world is kind of small and, there are a few spots that open up. And so you have to be prepared for those kinds of things. And also the understanding that that all of that is confidential, right? So you just have to accept that you can't always, um, always have your professors or always have your colleagues or always have other people writing those reference letters. But yeah, I think being willing to accept that it's not, I wouldn't even call it failure. It's that disappointment is inevitable, that there will be many more disappointments than there are you know, wins in that situation. And every single person will tell you the same story, that it wasn't, you know, just a natural fall into place type of situation. Um, And my first job uh, at Roosevelt happened when I was finishing my comps at Northwestern. It was a funny story. Actually, I was so excited to finish my comprehensive exams. And I remember walking out of the music administration building, otherwise known as MAB, which they aren't using in the music school anymore there. But walking out of that into the parking lot and passing by the Beehive, which was the practice room facility there. And I got a phone call on my cell phone, which at the time had like an antenna that you pulled out of it and like flipped up. It was like the first iteration of a cell phone. And it was the Dean actually from Roosevelt saying that I had been recommended by Fred Hemke, and would I be interested in a job? Like somebody called me and offered me a job oh, wow. without me actually applying for it, which never happens. Um, it just, you know, was timing. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing too, is that sometimes the timing works out and sometimes it doesn't. But it's not necessarily a statement on the person. And I think that that's an important thing, too, that sometimes there are really deserving people, um, but the timing isn't always right. And so, yeah, it's perspective on these applications because it is, you know, so many people, right, looking for one small little thing, and there's so very few of them.
0: That's one thing that I've noticed with a lot of people that I've seen in competitions and all, I mean, job applications with everything. It's so important to not take these things personally as a personal attack, you know? It's very easy to, obviously, because you put so much work into it. And when you don't get what you want, it's kind of like a failure, even though it's, it's subjective in most instances anyways. But I love that point of making sure that you keep it in perspective of not letting it be like an attack on you, but just as like a disappointment and a bump on the road and you keep on going.
1: Yeah. As you know, it's, it's always hard to remember that not to let those types of things um, define you Mm -hmm. as a person. Um, It's the same thing with failure in a performance or just not having a perfect performance that it doesn't define you as a person. Mm -hmm. um, And it doesn't mean that you don't have something musically truly valuable to say. It's just a moment in time. And it's the same thing with these job applications, you know, and positions that sometimes they're just written for you. And you happen to be applying for it at the time that it comes open. And then other times it's like, if it was only 10 years later, that (laughs) job would have been perfect, right? Or 10 years earlier and moving to that location would have been perfect. There's just so many things at play that, you know, it can, I I think it can be really soul crushing early on for graduates when they're looking for positions because there are so few um, and there's so many people applying and it's hard not to take those things personally. But I do think that trying to always think about what's next is, is something that we should be teaching our students. That it's, you know, that was the other thing, too, is that this is actually a joke between Fred Hamke and me. But I remember him telling me this, you know, one piece of sage advice that he had to offer about performing and my career and whatever else. He kept saying to me, you know, Jan no one's going to call you to hire you to play the Creston, you know? And so I was like, what do you mean? You know, (laughs) why not? You know, but (laughs) what was hilarious was that so many years later, actually, I played a concert. There was a, a, a man who, had studied with Hemke very, very early on that runs a, a series um, through the Barrington White House. This is on the outskirts of Chicago. And it's a concert series at this Barrington White House. And they, they wanted to put on a concert in honor of Fred Hemke. And so I ended up playing this concert a month before, a month of the day before Fred Hemke died. Oh, wow. Um, and this man wrote me an email and said, I'd like to hire you to come and play this concert in honor of your teacher, and we'll, you know, bring you to Chicago and do this. And, you know, I think it'd be great if you could keep it somewhat audience friendly. Maybe you could play the Creston. <laughs> <Of> course. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, this is so funny. It's that finally happening. <laughs> calling to hire me to play the Creston. Um, which of course you know i think he laughed so hard when i told him that when that's i saw that's great but yeah i mean thinking about what's next and and being a planner yourself that you're not waiting for an opportunity to come to you but you're out there creating your own opportunities mm. and that's really what kept me going in those early days because there were many and i don't want to say it's i mean they were depressing i mean i guess yeah they were they were depressing and i i mean I don't want to, you know, speak lightly about depression, but it was depressing to have graduated and and not have any real outlooks for jobs. And I felt creatively in a rut. I wasn't really playing, you know, and I loved teaching. I absolutely loved my private studio. I loved teaching the students I taught. But there for me, there was something that I was still looking for that was missing, and that was the creative part. And always remembering that knowing what's next or being able to create what's next, not waiting for what's next to come along, but just being active about it actually put me in a much better place. And I feel like put me in a much better place when I went to apply for jobs that I was ready for a position when one came along because I was creatively in a better place at that point, Mm -hmm. rather than being in a kind of down place and then a job pulling me up out of it. It actually required me to pull myself out of the low place that I was in. Mm -hmm. And then I felt like I I was more primed and ready for those jobs that did come up. I felt like I was a more attractive candidate because, you know, they saw that I was creating things. I was doing things and making things happen. And so that's always to me what I like to share with my graduate students is, you know, always have a plan for what's next. It doesn't matter in what avenue that is, whether it's in your teaching or your playing or uh, administrative things, always having an idea about what it is that brings you joy and happiness and makes you feel creatively fulfilled and then how you can help make that happen. Mm. And that often takes a lot of work, but you know, again, we talk a lot about the process rather than the result and the process of actually being actively working towards something and creating something help spur on the next thing it's when we get into those long cycles where nothing creative ha- is happening and there's just nothing on the horizon that we kind of spin downwards into a creative slump and we've all been there we and we all c- will continue to be there at some point it's figuring out how to get yourself out of it that's the important part Whew, i took us on a long journey on that one didn't I? sorry <laughs> no worries
0: i love it it's all great stuff and now for a word from our other sponsor, Consistency Winds. Consistency Winds was established in 2002 by Jonathan Cathell, who has over 30 years of experience working as an instrument technician. Aside from Jonathan Cathell, there are three other amazing technicians that work there, Jeremy Hill, Alex Singleton, and Courtney Christensen. All four technicians specialize in high-end setups and modifications. One thing that I really genuinely appreciate about Consistency Wins is that I know that they're not doing this just to gouge me for money. They're doing this because they genuinely love the instrument and they love making sure that we understand what they're doing. Consistency Wins doesn't use any gimmicky repair materials as a means to lure in musicians. Instead they focus on how the instrument should properly function and provide helpful, myth-proof, tried, and tested information. This encourages less visits to the repair shop through the long-lasting services they provide. So if your instrument is out of repair and you're looking for someone who you can trust to do quality work, make sure you go to Consistency Wins. That's consistent, the letter C, wins. One thing that I did want to talk about was this kind of goes along with the idea of successes and failures and disappointments and all that. One avenue of work that a lot of saxophonists have not really been able to venture into just because of availability is also the orchestral scene. And I know that you've actually done quite a bit of work in that. And I'm just wondering what was your experience like getting into it?
1: Thanks for asking. And it's a a really important part of it's a A really important part to me of my career. I just love playing in orchestras and thankfully more and more um, saxophone is appearing in the orchestra. Um, I love all the older repertoire as well um, as the new and exciting things that is, you know, being written in. I think the important thing for me was uh, figuring out how to actually contact orchestras and get involved. Mm. Um, So contacting the principal clarinetist, in addition to contacting the personnel manager is typically the way to go. Taking the sub auditions for a lot of these orchestras are ways to get in. It just depends on the orchestra. And so you kind of have to know. So I did a lot of cold emailing of, um, personnel managers and clarinetists. And then I also did a lot of searching through websites when that was a thing um, of, you know, what was on a season and contacting um, them to see if I could take the sub audition. Uh, Same thing with job applications, there will be a lot of disappointments. uh, And an audition, like a competition is you're playing a snapshot in time, and knowing that, you know, if you fail at one of these auditions, it's not a statement on you and it's not even necessarily a statement on your playing it just happens to be you know how you played in that moment and anyone will tell you who's taken a navy band audition or i mean any military band audition but sorry the navy band just came to mind um or competition or orchestral auditions is that these types of things happen and in fact when i first contacted orchestras to take auditions i had multiple auditions in the same month And I won two of them and really bombed one of them. And the funny thing was is that I won the two top ones that I auditioned for and absolutely bombed a local regional one um, that I took at the very same time. And part of it was just the circumstances. One was set up like a sub audition. This was the local regional one was set up like a sub audition where I showed up and it was behind a screen, it was very formal but they ended up presenting me with um, a repertoire list that was entirely different at the audition than oh, what they said,
0: no.
1: <laughs> which was an absolute nightmare, but it taught me something very valuable. And that was, you have to be prepared beyond what you think is necessary. And I wasn't smart then. I, I wasn't smart about those things. And I literally practiced what was sent to me as the audition material, and I really knew nothing else. Um, mm-hmm. And if I had had just a little bit of knowledge of the orchestral repertoire beyond what was sent to me, I would have been fine because I would have just then, oh, like that's from Rachmaninoff's Symphonic Dances. No problem. I'll play that through. I, I'm randomly picking pieces right. and I remember which ones they were that were in this packet but weren't told to me, but I had no idea. Um, and it was it was absolutely awful. But yeah, ever after then, you know, I really know the standard rep. Um, I'm able to play that. I contact those people. And it's really, you know, trying to get to know the community that you're part of and knowing which organizations are performing more contemporary or more advanced rep. Um, So, yeah, it's, you know, you should write to these personnel managers and the principal clarinetists and look for the opportunities yourself. They're not going to come find you go join the union, go join, you know, whatever um, needs to be done in order to perform with your local uh, orchestra and seek it out. There's no, no problems with writing people, expressing your interest in performing with their organization. Um, And so that's, you know, what, what I would recommend. And yeah, one, one thing sort of leads to the next one orchestra finds it like, Oh, who are you using as your saxophonist? And then your name gets sort of passed along. And so yeah, that's been a really fruitful part of my career. I've really enjoyed, you know, continuing to play in Chicago, even though I no longer live there. Mm. I've loved playing with the Grant Park Symphony and the um, Chicago Symphony a few times. Um, and the Lyric Opera, I have played every production there um, that they have done with saxophone since 2003.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, so that was the year that I graduated from Northwestern. And I was really in a in a really big funk. And I'll tell you that I, I used to have these, lunches with my husband, um, because we were both feeling pretty creatively in a rut. And we'd have these long lunches, like, how can we fix this? You know, and he finally gave me the courage to just write and ask for an audition at the Lyric Opera. And I was like, I can't just write them and ask them to hear me. But I did. And the crazy thing was, they said, great, can you come tomorrow? Oh wow! <laughs> oh, and play, and uh, so I was like, "Oh my gosh!" So I, you know, pulled together my materials really super fast. Wow. I went and played an audition, and I have played every single opera with saxophone ever since.
0: That's amazing. Talk about being proactive! You have to be ready if you have one day's notice.
1: <laughs> Yeah. So when you're ready to be proactive about creating something, be sure that you're artistically ready as well, that you can, For sure. that You when you, when you write somebody, you're ready to go. But yeah, if he hadn't sort of nudged me along, I would never have made that call.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Inspirational husband. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of going off of the lines of the thing, some things that you mentioned. One big part of what you were talking about was community outreach with that and being proactive, of course. And I feel like your career has really exemplified that. Just one example is the Bent Frequency duo. I know you guys do so much. I know you guys feature marginalized groups of composers and you're very proactive, you're going on tours, you're regularly commissioning works. Um, and I've been able to see you guys perform a couple of times and I've always really enjoyed it. So could you just talk a little bit about that ensemble?
1: Yeah, thank you. And I'm so glad that you've enjoyed it. Trying to find your people. This is something that Amy Williams taught me, or the saying she she sort of coined. Uh, Amy Williams is a composer who wrote us a piece. And she teaches uh, in, in Pennsylvania. And um, I've known her since my Northwestern days. But she always says how important it is to find your people. Mm. And when you find your people, you find common interests. You find people who enjoy performing the same kind of music as you and are invested in the same way. And Stuart Gerber and I uh, met when I first moved to Atlanta and he asked me to play with Ben Frequency. Ben Frequency is a group um, that he started in 2003 and I joined um, later in 2009, I think it was. Uh, And we performed one piece together and we just really musically hit it off. Like we were really in sync. We really seemed to be interested in the same... Types of music. Um, and so when he asked me to come on as a co artistic director, um, I thought this is perfect. Um, this will allow me a chance to put on performances that I want to. To play in, um, that's always the hard part. Is is finding performances as a contemporary saxophonist. Again, people aren't calling you to <laughs> play these things usually. Sometimes, but you know, what is it I want to play? And I want to be paid to do it. That's the other thing is that like I don't want to just volunteer my time anymore. I want to be paid to to do these things. And so working on this group, we were able to, you know, write grants and fundraise and do all kinds of things to put on huge productions. We've we've put on staged operas, we've put on duo programs, we've done tours, we've done guest artist residencies with luminaries like George Lewis and Sarah Hennies and all kinds of things. Um, But it was just a great opportunity to be able to have a hand in creating my own destiny so to speak Uh, um you know we were able to brainstorm who we'd want to commission who we'd want to program that year and it's been really um a great source of inspiration. And I have really come to know many more composers and performers than I ever, beyond my realm of, um, you know, understanding and the sax, the small little saxophone world. It's been great doing a lot of mixed chamber things. So yeah, we've really loved doing that and loved being able to dedicate our seasons in the recent past to promoting works by composers who are typically underrepresented in classical music. And that has been a great joy. And again, open my eyes to so much incredible music and voices that uh, that has been really one of the um, highlights of my career in the last 10 years is that project.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing project. We all really appreciate your work in it, also. Thank <laughs> just you. To, just to wrap things up, I'm wondering: is there anything that we can look forward to if Bent Frequency is doing anything this year, even with COVID happening, or if any other thing in your career that we can look forward to listening to or seeing you at?
1: Yeah, um, so we're you know trying our best to do a few online. Um, things I feel like people are really zoomed out and so we haven't been as active in the performance aspect of things we're busy commissioning things so that when we are back in person we have a whole new lineup of things to do but we are working on a concert featuring the music created by um, Jewish women composers Mm. and uh, featuring them talking about their their music in conjunction with the Bremen Museum, which is um, a Jewish heritage museum in Atlanta. And so that's the current project that we're working on. And I think that that will be sometime in April. I'm not sure the exact date, but we'll post it on the website. And then Stuart and I are working on a bunch of new duo pieces that we have commissioned So we'll be putting together a tour of California, likely, as soon as things open up here. Um, And then, of course, we'll probably take another tour somewhere on the East Coast as well. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what's in the works right now is trying to get a lot more pieces written so that we can do things in person. We've done a couple of distance recordings, which actually worked out really well, but are much less fulfilling yeah, and harder to put together um, than we had anticipated so we um, did a world premiere actually at the Splice Festival in October of a, a work that we commissioned by Peter Van Zant Lane from the University of Georgia and it's a great piece saxophone percussion and electronics but I mean, I recorded my part here and Stuart recorded his part in Atlanta and Peter Van Sant Lane put the electronics with those two things together in Athens. And then, I don't know, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't feel the same as performing together. Very convoluted. And, yeah, you know, and it's just, it's a lot of weird recording type of things with um, mm. click tracks and whatever else. So yeah, I don't, I'm not really super interested in doing a ton more of those. But that's what's, that's what's shaping up for now.
0: That sounds great. I'm very excited to hear all the new works that you're commissioning. Wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. It's always such a joy talking to you. You're such a wonderful, inspirational person, and I'm very glad you could make it on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been such a great pleasure to be invited, and great talking to you, too.
0: Tune into our next episode with Dr. Matthew Yenlove. Thanks for listening.